running warplane on this show. Um, the war stories came out. I didn't expect them, but there they were. And I really try to avoid warplane on the show, but uh, every now and then it happens. It's not always in my control. But um, if you are sensitive to war stories, uh, do not listen to the first 10 minutes of this uh, show. Um, great conversation with Bruce Monker. And I was so happy to have him on. We're talking about all kinds of good stuff. And he himself is a war veteran from Afghanistan. Anywho, he gets into the war stories. So if that is an issue for you, do not listen to the first 10 minutes of this show. Take care. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Today we have such an important show, and I am thrilled to have... Bruce Moncour on. Thanks for being here, Bruce. Thanks for having me. And happy birthday to the Royal Canadian Regiment. Yeah, 138 years. 1883 they were formed. So they've got quite a long, an illustrious uh, history. And uh, I was very proud to be uh, attached to 1RCR for uh, uh, Rotation 306. What was your trade if you were attached? Uh, I was actually a reservist. Uh, I ended up going regs after, but okay. uh, I was a reservist with the Essex and Kent Scottish Regiment down in Windsor. So yeah, it was uh, it was a, a, a big wake up call. I remember uh, when we first got to Petawawa, our first thing was a winter, a two week winter X to kind of build morale between the reg force guys and the reservists. And I remember my the strap on my uh, <laughs> my snowshoe fell apart. And I'm here. I am. I've got one leg walking on on the snow, and I got one sinking in. And just oddly enough, the brigade commander in the RSM, Bobby Gerard, rest in peace, uh, just happened to come up, and we're we're not too impressed with my uh, with my performance at that time. <laughs> but yeah, that was my first experience really with the winter warfare. We did two weeks in the in the snow, and everyone was complaining like, "How does it, what does this have to do with the the, the heat of Afghanistan?" But <laughs> it was a, it was it was a uh, it was a morale building. It was a team building exercise. So. Well, that's why we always carry lots of five fifty cord and gun tape for just such occasions. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what year were you in Afghanistan? I was there in two thousand six. So I did uh, rotation three hundred six. Um, we we I took I fought in Operation Medusa. Um, <clears throat> I took part in the largest battle actually that the, uh, during the Afghan mission. And, uh, my platoon was reduced from 40 to five that weren't killed or wounded. Um, and the first day we were tasked with taking a white school. And what ended up happening was, um, our, uh, bombardment, our aerial bombardment, uh, was reduced from 72 hours to 24. And essentially then the, the brass got a little nervous or kind of jumped the gun and wanted us to uh, take the school, but not have as much collateral damage. <clears throat> it's about winning the hearts and minds, right? But you got to also keep in mind, this is our first taste of combat. So we were as green as you could be. So I think <clears throat> in retrospect, I would have personally would have preferred that extra 48 hours of bombings just based on how, None of us had ever fired a, a shot in anger. And uh, what ended up happening was the, 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 the orders kind of got jumbled up and ROC essentially lined us up in a, I guess, a, a garbage sweep line, like basically an extended line. And we just walked into the guns. And that was perfect for the Taliban because they had set themselves up in a giant U. And we were flanked on three sides. And what ended up happening is as soon as we walked far enough into that U, where we were completely enveloped, they threw up a pen flare in the air, and that indicated that the trap had been set, and they sprung it. And of the, the two platoons that went in there that day, uh, 20, so 80 men, uh, 20 became casualties, that either killed or wounded, and four dead, 16 wounded. And, uh, yeah, we fought for about five hours before we took some really major casualties to some high-up positions. Uh, Frank Mellish, 
uh, uh, Rick Nolan, uh, warrant officers. And once you lose two warrant officers in the platoon, you're really starting to, to and our Sergeant Major went down, uh, Sergeant Major Barnes. So once you start losing really key, uh, uh, I guess, <clears throat> positions, we, we were given the order to retreat. And just to give you a sense that there was 80 of us, we were surrounded by about the estimated 400 Taliban. And uh, uh, a lot of rockets were fired, if I, if, the way I remember it. And uh, I actually had my first taste of friendly fire. Uh, a laser-guided American bomb landed, I want to say, roughly 30 or 40 feet from me while I was leopard crawling into position. And uh, I closed my eyes, and I honestly, if it had gone off, I, I'd be there'd be nothing left of me. And they tried to tell us later that it was because it was laser guided. It was off. Uh, it's laser guided this, that it, that's why it didn't go off, but it was just a, a dud, you know, the, 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 uh, <clears throat> the lowest, uh, bitter, right? So <clears throat> it was a JDAM, 500 pound JDAM, if I recall. So once we retreated, um, the next morning I'm eating breakfast and we were going to do a show of force, basically just dismount from the labs and fire all our weapons into this white school and show that we're, you know, what what's coming there. So way, what do you mean by a white school? That was the infamous school. So the white school is where the Taliban became a formed entity. It's where they basically signed their Bill of Rights or became a, you know, club group terrorist organization. But uh, it was it had sentimental value for them because of just what it represented in terms of their becoming a, a formed entity. Oh. <clears throat> sorry. Jesus, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Where? How do I get back to you? No, you're still here. Am I here? Okay. Here we go. Um. So, formed entity. <clears throat> what ended up happening was, um, we uh, <clears throat> we the next morning, we were then gonna. I essentially get dismount from our labs and fire into this white school. But what ended up happening was there was a A-10 warthog in the, in the air <clears throat> firing, uh, uh, firing their guns at the position. And the Canadian foo forward operating officer uh, from the artillery told him to look for the fire. But unfortunately we had lit an unauthorized fire. So he saw our fire before he saw that of the enemies and lit up that fire only like a short burst but as you know that a10 can be quite a fearsome uh, yeah to, to translate for our audience that doesn't know the a10 warthog is a flying tank it's a subsonic jet um, with unbelievable uh, firepower the gun on it it's it's insane how powerful that thing is the warthog uh, <clears throat> is the only plane it's basically a plane built around this gun <clears throat> It's a 30 millimeter Gatling cannon and it's so powerful that it pushes the plane back while, while it fires. And it's uh, it's, it's a tank buster and it goes through tanks like butter. Um, so <clears throat> while we're sitting there, I think it was only like a second or two that he lit us up, but it's electrically charged. So while I'm eating breakfast, all of a sudden I'm tossed in the air and I land on my face, lose consciousness. And when I come to this right arm is flailing like a fish out of water. I just picture, you know, everyone's gone to a lake, caught a fish, brought it out and kind of put it on the dock or on the, on the side of, you know, in the boat or whatever and watched it kind of flail up and down. Right. That's exactly what my arm was doing. And I honestly thought it was detached. I thought, okay, I lost my arm, my right arm. And I grabbed it. But what ended up happening was because this side, my left side was the one that got hit in the head. The nerves on the right side were kind of like, kind of not knowing what to do. And uh, so I grabbed the arm and I got regained control of it. And then I grabbed my left arm. I grabbed my legs. I che- did a, like a, a check. And then I just kind of like let left, kind of let out this giant sigh of relief. I was like, <gasps> as soon as I did that, then the head injury started just pouring down, and it's pouring down my face. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm nervous. And I, I, I don't know what I'm doing, obviously. And I'm, I'm catching. Uh, the blood in my hands. And I remember I have like a giant, you know, if you've ever washed your face and thrown the water on your face, that was filled with blood. And I remember trying to save it or grab it. And it was, it took me a while before I realized 
like this blood's no good to you anymore, Bruce. Why are you even doing this? And I remember dropping the my handful and watching it coagulate with the uh, the sand, the Afghani sand, and thinking, oh man, this is this is serious. This is bad. And that was at the point where I felt a breeze, like a, like a small breeze, and it was a new sensation. And it was the fact that the wind was blowing on my exposed brains. So I was actually like, the first time. I, I'm probably one of the few people in the world that could tell you what it's like to feel the wind on your uh, exposed brains. And, so your uh, skull, you had a hole in your skull. Yeah, it was blown apart. So I crawled to the guy that was TCCC qualified in my section, and uh, he started doing first aid, but then he went down from shock because he was also hit with the A-10. Ultimately, I think 60 guys were hit with the A-10. Including so was it, was it the, because the, um, I mean, you weren't hit by the round or you wouldn't be here. So it was the concussion it of the rounds? Shrapnel, shrapnel. Shrapnel. So I was hit with, uh, I was hit three times, once in the head. That was the most severe, uh, once in the back and once in the, uh, in the hip. <clears throat> so I was then flown to Kandahar Airfield where I would go under an emergency brain surgery. This is September 4th now, 2006. And uh, I called home, let everyone know. I had the surgery. I woke up with blast blankets on. I asked the nurse, what's going on? Why am I covered with these lead-lined blankets? And they said, oh, well, we were bombed during your surgery uh, with rockets. The Taliban attacked the base. And, uh, yeah, so the doctor stayed with me, kept doing the surgery, you know, a, a big testament to the, the, the men and women that, you know, stayed with me and, and continued while, you know, rockets were literally raining down around them. And then uh, I did the ramp ceremony, and shortly thereafter I was flown to Landstuhl, Germany. I had a second brain surgery where they removed 5% of my brain that was too damaged. And they left the uranium in there. I guess uh, around the Vietnam era, they realized it was better to leave than retrieve. So they were doing so much more damage by uh, by uh, trying to get the, the the shrapnel out of the brain. So uh, now I, I I can't get you know MRIs and uh, I don't go I don't set off fi- uh, 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 alarms, which you'd think with depleted uh-huh. uranium in your head at the airport or something like that, you think you would. But so with that depleted uh-huh. uh, uranium in your head. Is cancer pretty much a guarantee? You know what? I don't know. I've always been, I've always had this long-standing fear that I'm going to get MS, Parkinson's, uh, cancer. I've always had that. Like, I just know it's going to happen. I just fear of it. Um, thankfully, every day is a bonus day, right? Every yeah. day since then has been basically a bonus. And I've I've been fortunate enough to find my partner, have two kids with her. Uh, but just it's always cognitively in the back of my brain that this could have long-standing effects. I don't even know. It could be really cold out, and something could shift, and that could be it. You know what I mean? It just it's there, and um, yeah, I'm just basically hoping for the best. I uh, yeah, it's 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 not something that uh, you know I, I think about every day, or, and I, I dwell on. But there's definitely times where I, if I have like a, a intense headache or something like that. Where I'm thinking, oh man, this is this is not good. But uh, with what you've shared yeah. so so far, not to get you off your roll here, but um, when there was a question asked of you about metals glorifying war, and that's just not it at all. What they do is they acknowledge the the valor, the sacrifice, uh, fighting in, um, in the face of fear, the courage that it takes to be in battle, um, to serve in general. But my God, when you're in actual combat. And that's what the medals are for. They're supposed to be a very rare thing that only a few earn as a recognition of sacrifice and incredible courage. That's the point of the medals. It doesn't glorify anything. It just says thank you for your service and thank you for your for your valor. Now, would you agree with with how I put that? A hundred percent. Like I'll I'll give you an example. Is my platoon uh, the Crazy Eights, the Eight Platoon uh, Charles Company we had 95% casualty rate and we fought in the biggest battle. And to my knowledge, I don't think anybody got a, a medal in that. And I watched everybody do something where it would be worthy of a medal. And that, that, that speaks to the leadership that we had, you know, our, our, our platoon officer didn't put anybody up and that, that speaks to the lack of leadership in my personal opinion, uh, that I wished 
he would have gotten over himself or gotten over the ego that comes with, you know, recognizing people and putting them and putting these guys forward. Like the guy that did, uh, that saved my life before he went down from shock. His name's Jeff Rainey. Lives in Edmonton. Really good guy. Really great guy. He was my, uh, my two IC on the ground, three IC in my section. And, uh, he, he played a major role in saving my life before he went down from shock. And I think, you know, recognizing that and recognizing what he did, while he started doing first aid to everybody while they were while while he himself was injured and then you know eventually going down from shock himself um yeah it's it's a bit it 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 is a contentious issue with myself and with a lot of the guys is that we feel that those 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 sacrifices weren't properly recognized and that's that's basically where why we're going to be talking today or or we're leading into is just why we're doing this is because um, there's a there's about forty thousand guys that are pretty peeved that a Victoria Cross didn't get uh, issued during that time. Well, when that valor is recognized, when that courage is recognized, it recognizes everybody. You know, it's yeah. not necessarily about um, deifying one person in particular. It's it's saying that it's it matters, you know, yeah. and uh, it's a morale booster for everyone. And it's one of those cases where there, I don't think there'd be anybody going, "Well, I want one too." It's like, no, 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 not not the VC. So the Victoria Cross, our highest honor, period. It hasn't been awarded to a Canadian since World War II. Um, what? Why? What? Like what? What do you think? I mean. Korea, uh, MEDAC, Afghanistan, there's got to be a VC in there somewhere. Um, what, what do you think the holdup is? So I can speak to this is we took over the Victoria Cross in 1993. So we don't have the British Victoria Cross anymore. Okay. Um, we, it's, it is now ours. But before that, there's one soldier, and his name fails me. I apologize. Part of one of the longstanding effects of my injuries is my short-term memory is very poor. And I fatigue when I concentrate. So, again, I apologize. Obviously, we, we've experienced that this morning when I was late for this this uh, podcast. So it's okay. I but, should have sent the reminder. Uh, right. So, um, in, in Korea, we actually put a guy up for the Victoria Cross. The country of Canada, we, we decided, I think he was a, a stretcher bearer. And he did some crazy stuff. He ended up being posthumously. And the British downgraded him. And in my opinion, when the country of Canada says, hey, our guy here deserves a VC, and the Brits kind of look it over and say, man, you know what? It's incredible. We'll give him the second highest medal. So we already had things going back to Korea where you're kind of like, we need our own system because obviously if you're not going to recognize you know, the country of Canada's uh, request for Victoria Cross, then we have problems, right? So, But it wasn't until Australia took over the system took over their own Victoria Cross system that we followed suit in, ni- in the early 90s. But then you had kind of a peacekeeper's desire to, um, I guess, hide the, the things that happened in Bosnia, um, uh, Somalia, uh, Cyprus. I'll give you an example. In the 70s, uh, in, in, the, in 1974, Cyprus was like, a hot zone like it was like there's yeah. lots of fighting and yeah, it wasn't always a vacation spot right right so uh there was a plane that got shot down where 11 canadians were killed um it was it was intense and so i my wife's greek and we went to greece and this guy tells me a story about how these greek cypriots were about to be killed by these Turk, turkish cypriots and he put all these greek cypriots in canadian uniforms and saved all their lives. And why don't we hear, why doesn't anybody hear this? Why do I have to go across the world, talk to a, a Greek guy who tells me this, you know, it's it, it's it's folklore in, in Greece about what these Canadians did. And the here ne- we don't, the Netherlands, that story. The Netherlands right? to this day. Um, if you're a Canadian veteran or soldier in the Netherlands, I mean, they roll out the red carpet. Um, yeah. we're, we're world famous and yet we don't sing our own songs. And I think that humility is ingrained in the Canadian culture. I think that's, that's, that's a major part of it. And we don't, we don't brag. We're not, you know, we don't, we don't do any of that stuff, but that's, that's a shortcoming and we can overcome that. 
I think then, um, especially with the Jess situation, was Jess was the first. Was Jess only? Jess happened a month after I I fought in that battle. So he was only a month after. So and let's. For <clears throat> me, we're both clearing our throats. Uh, so this is what brought you on today is uh, Jess right. uh, Rochelle. and the everybody and their dog is behind the idea of getting a Victoria Cross for Jess. And what is the holdup? I mean, the Royal Canadian Legion usually doesn't get involved with such things. Uh, so, so they're aboard uh, the RCR Association. Even the Patricias are like, okay, we're, we're with you too. And the Patricia Association is on board. We're, we're, everybody's on board to get this guy a VC. So whose decision is it about whether the VC happens or not? It would be the Honours and Awards Committee under the Governor General, which is, which is led by the CDS. So there's a group of soldiers... That would review this. So who, this who's, who's the GG now and who's the CDS now? Uh, Mary Simon is the governor general. She just got implemented, I want to say, like a few weeks before the election. So she took over from the female astronaut that had all the scandal involving bullying and stuff like that. Yeah, no, uh, nobody bothered to do much right. <laughs> vetting on that one. Right, Oops. and then the CDS now is just permanently made. His, his name is uh, General Wayne Eyre, former former PPCLI soldier, um, uh, still is. He's actually the highest ranking PPCLI soldier in the country, and uh, he took over for obviously uh, uh, McDonald, who was uh, had that uh, military sexual trauma uh, scandal um, shortly after he took over. So. The two of them are kind of, kind of taken over for, you know, in, in times of scandal. Both of their predecessors were involved in something quite scandalous, and have now taken over. So, we started this this whole this whole valor in the presence of the enemy. We started this as a way to do documentaries about these amazing stories. I just want to have a do- make these documentaries where I'm talking about the medic pocket and we've talked to John Calvin and we've talked to a few of the guys that were there and we want to make something. And I've talked to the woman that wrote the book. She's on CBC, uh, uh as it happens. Um, uh, her name fails me, but we've, we've, we've done a lot of, we have quite a few people that we have lined up where we, we realized that we wanted to get a, a, a VC for Afghanistan, but then our range of spear and our scope, just grew so immensely and we realized you know we've got guys in world war one that were like holy moses how does this guy not get it and we started looking and we said wow we have like thousands and thousands of people that we need to take a better look at do you know and if tommy just, prince ever got a victoria's cross i should know this but i don't he did not he did not and he is on our list believable um i mean what he did in the first special forces is just i mean the Americans gave him a silver cross. Like, a, a, you know what I mean? Like, they, they recognize him. And part of what we're going to be doing is we're going to be arguing that women and BIPOC, so black, indigenous, people of color, um, didn't get the proper recognition that they deserved during the First and Second World War. Just to give you an example of that, there's this sniper, Francis Pegamoagbo, uh, out of Perry Sound. He was in World War One. He actually snuck through. He wasn't even supposed to join. But for whatever reason, what uh, uh, recruiting center he went through, they kind of turned a blind eye to the fact that he was indigenous. He ends up fighting the entire war, injured a few times, fights, gets gassed in eeps, everything like that. By the end of the war, his sniper count is confirmed kills is 378 confirmed kills. He's got the fifth most of all time. Not only that, but he also captured 300 additional German soldiers. So he essentially took out almost 700 Germans in four years. If you've got to think about that too, because you're not on the front lines every day, all day, right? You do a month, then you do, you convalesce back, you know, further back. So you're not on the front. So for, in four years, for this guy to take out essentially a brigade by himself, you have to argue. He ended up getting the, the bar or the third, the third highest medal. And he got a bar three times, one of 39 to ever do it. He, when he first got the third highest medal, he was downgraded from the second highest medal. So he was put up for the second highest medal. It's like he took out a battalion by himself. 
And here's the way to put that in perspective. Sylvester Stallone plays a character called uh, uh, Rambo, John Rambo, right? And in his movies, they've they've counted all his confirmed kills. And it's like on a website you can find this. And his his kill count is 493. So Peggy has almost doubled a fictitious character, John Rambo. And here we are. We're talking about putting him on our $5 bill. We're talking about all these other things. And we don't we don't talk about giving him the Victoria Cross. And then some people are saying, well, it's about the act of courage. Well, then you can argue, well, Billy Bishop's citation was only witnessed by Billy Bishop. And he was the and the, and they ended up arguing, saying, hey, well, it's not about Billy Bishop's this one thing. It was about his body of work. And you're like, well, then if that's the case, then Peggy then more than qualifies because he took out almost 10 times the Germans that Billy Bishop did. He was essentially your best sniper, whereas Billy Bishop was your best aviator. And here we are still 100 years later not talking about writing this, correcting this wrong. And he's one of four, I think, lock-solid indigenous guys from the First World War that we've discovered saying, man, we need a serious review of these guys because holy Moses, these guys... I think the only way is to have uh, pick one of these heroes and have a proper uh, Hollywood-level movie done. Um, I mean, my pick is... uh, a Hollywood movie about Tommy Prince. I mean, what that guy accomplished <laughs> World War II and Korea and just the whole story. And it's so important for all Canadians, but especially the First Nations, to yeah. for them to understand and have that pride. It's like, here's one of yours and here's what he did. And, I mean, just incredible. And. One of the guys that we're, we're looking at, his name is Henry Norwest. He's actually from Alberta. He's from the Edmonton region. And he came into the war later uh, when they finally, uh, essentially the British pressured the Canadians to start allowing Indigenous peoples to join because of the, man, the manpower shortage. And eventually about 4,000 Indigenous peoples joined the, uh, the war. That's out of a population of only about 100,000. So statistically speaking, the indigenous men signed up actually more than actually Canadians did in terms of statistically. And this guy, Henry Norwest, he got a hundred kills in a year, the fastest out of anybody in the, in the war. And unfortunately on, I want to say three months before the war ended, he got taken out by a German sniper and it affected his, his battalion so badly that general Curry, the guy that basically spearheaded the, the Vimy Ridge battle ordered a, uh, barrage in the location of the uh, of, of the, the German sniper to try to get him out of the war as well after and then and in this Henry Norwest's um, um, his uh, his grave marker they have it must have been a good snake uh, sniper it must have been a really good sniper to take out old Henry that was like what they wrote on his, uh, his tombstone he was he was a really beloved character and it, it there is a mystique around the indigenous soldiers in World War One that they were kind of like, you know, from the Chief Tecumseh era, era and stuff like that, that they were bred for this and they lived on the land and, they, and they, they, they were really, really good scouts and really, really good snipers and they were really good shots. And it's not, it's not like all, a lot of them were. And this Henry Norwest, he got, he got recognized in, in Vimy Ridge, but you kind of like, when you, you read how he's recognized, you're like, man, I don't know, man. Like if you, if you make him a white dude, I'm thinking he might be he might be given the Victoria Cross, and there's a lot. Actually, you talked about before we started this. Your grandfather, who fought in the Boer War and the First World War, one of the other guys' names. His name is George McLean, out of BC, and he fought in the Boer War, and then joined up in the World War or First World War at age 40. I don't know how old your grandfather would have been, but probably around in his 30s or 40s. And as somebody that's 38, <laughs> knows like. Like, and, and knows the, the wear and tear of, you know, obviously 10 years of infantry, but knows that, you know, as time goes on, 38 is an old man to be doing this. Like you're, oh, yeah. you're the average, the average age is 22, you know, it's 18 to 22 for, to do this type of work, especially on the front lines. Well, this George McLean, he, uh, during Vimy Ridge, saved his, his officer's life, brought him back to the hospital, uh, carried him and then killed, uh, I think he killed. 19 Germans uh, took out a machine gun nest and then captured another 14 while injured and brought those 14 back. And 
um, he got the second highest medal. And if you read the other what, guys, what is the second the, highest medal? Uh, the DCM, I what, think. What's that stand for? Service okay. Cross or medal, Distinguished Service Medal. So, or it's the DCO. I, it's the British system, but he would have been considered under the second highest medal. But if you look at George McLean, which again you got to remember, he's forty years old, saved the life, took out fourteen, captured another, or took out nineteen, captured another fourteen, and then was injured in the process. You read the other guys that got the Victoria Cross. He measures up equally. It's the only thing he has that they don't have is brown skin. And the Americans are actually, as last August, they announced that they're going to be doing a five-year study of all indigenous and black soldiers from World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And they're going to be looking into this to see if uh, racism played a role as to why none of them, some of them didn't get the Congressional Medal of Honor. And uh, it's a five-year study. And I think we should, as Canadians, we should emulate it except we've put our own spin on it where I think we should go back to the First World War because I've just given you three incredible examples of guys that you, we should go back and do some reviewing on and see if this happens. Just to go back to Francis Pegnoagbo, when he came back from the war, every other soldier, uh, every soldier that came back was, was, uh, was able to apply for a farm. They got a, 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 basically a free farm from the government for their service. And he was rejected by his Indian agent who said, no, you can't. Could you imagine the guy that didn't serve, Indian agent, who is, you know, uh, Arthur, Alexander Logan, who said, no, you can't, you can't get this farm, Peggy, sorry. No, never mind that he took out 700 Germans and probably acted, and it was one of 39 guys that got three bars on his medal. But then to tell him, you've been rejected because, frankly, we don't think you're responsible enough to, to do a farm, to, to be able to handle a farm. And his lungs uh, in later life, took a beating from all the gas and he couldn't sleep uh, laying down. Otherwise he would have drowned. So he had to sleep in a chair sitting up for the rest of his life until 1954. His, his lungs were never the same. Bronchitis was a big issue and stuff like that. So he asked for a pension because of this after shortly thereafter. And it took 13 years for them. This, and then 13 years to get this, this, this guy, the pension. And then he had to prove every month that he wasn't spending his pension frivolously to his Indian agent. So that's a kind of like a testament uh, to just how these guys were treated. And you, you've got, Kate, you got uh, I guess, proof that these guys were actually treated so poorly. And I think that proof and the, that evidence that we're going to present forward is going to speak to the fact that possibly then that they should be upgraded to the Victoria Cross. Um, these are going to be after. Basically, right now, for, for right now, we're our organization, Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, we're focused on the Jess file because we know that if we can get one person through and break through the glass ceiling, so to speak, um, that we can then advocate for Peggy and Henry Norwest and the guy in Korea that that the, that they the, the, we put up and the, the Brits downgraded and Tommy Prince. We've got you know, there's this one woman in, in World War II. She was a nurse and her ship sunk. Margaret something. We actually named a ship after her. We named we, we specifically named an actual Canadian Navy naval ship after her. And I'm sure some of your your guests will will write down her 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 full name. Uh, but uh, we uh, she was sunk in a ship, and she carried this this one woman with her all night. And the King of England gave her like essentially a, a made up a medal because they couldn't imagine giving a medal to a woman. And they're like, well, we can't give her a man's medal. So they just gave, gave her this her own medal as a, a recognize her for her how, how brave she was and what she did on this ship. And you got to think like, okay, like now that we're it's 2021 and we're actually giving women military medals, maybe we could go back and see that World War II woman and be like, hey, remember that time we gave you, like we made up a medal because we couldn't imagine giving you a men's medal? Well, maybe we should give her a men's medal because, uh, you know, this is um, probably a point in the conversation where I, I have to ask, and I'm not going to be popular with the Legion to ask this question, um, but I really have a strong dislike for Legion medals. Very, very strong, because um, those of us that served can tell the difference between one or the other, and they will argue that, well, Legion medals are worn on the right. Okay, so we know that. 
but uh, as far as the representation to the civilian world, they don't know that, you know, for, for the most part. And they looked a whole lot like war medals. And we, we talk about just how hard fought and how sacred these awards are. And yet on the right side, there's people with uh, great big racks on them on, on the right side that, um, in my mind, really diminish war medals and, and medals of valor. Um, what's your opinion on it? Well, I like to look at the history of the Legion. I believe it was Thomas uh, Haig. The, the British general, when he came to visit Canada, he suggested that the Canadians come together like the British did and form the Legion, essentially. So it was uh, generals and colonels uh, that fir- fought in the First World War that formed the Legion. And the Legion was, in fact, a very big, uh, it, it was huge. And it was all the veterans. So, like, Canada was a country of, I believe, 11 million in and World War One when it started, and six hundred thousand went and fought in the war. So it's like one out of eleven guys went. So that was like a, it's that's that's a block of guys. Like if you look at politically speaking, if you crossed a a, a World War One veterans or World War Two veterans for quite some time, their political power was enough to change a government. And that's I think was one of the biggest reasons that I think Afghan veterans. Uh, don't get the respect and stuff like that because a whole generation didn't go and fight in Afghanistan. Whereas in World War One and World War Two, you had a whole generation. Now, getting back to the Legion when they formed in 1927, all those guys had medals on the on the on the left side. Like all those guys were, you know, the the baddest of the bad and were the toughest of the tough. And eventually, you know, and I've heard that the World War One guys gave the World War Two guys difficulties when they joined the Legion because. Oh, your war didn't have gas, and you know the, the trench warfare was so much worse. And I heard then that the World War II guys gave the Korean War guys, you know, you know, guff and and, and issues. And it's just you know, it, it, traditionally speaking, you know, the Legion has been a very, very uh, traditional, very hard organization to get change out of. And that hasn't changed. I uh, I, I talk they're, in, they're in, in the first that. in the first 10 episodes of this show way back in the beginning. I talk about this a lot. Uh, we have a real habit of either trivializing our own service or trivializing the service of others. Um, an Afghanistan veteran once said to me, well, you're not a real veteran. You know, I was in Afghanistan. I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> that's nasty. Everyone's but, got a role to play. You're that's right. in a wheel, right? So if your cog it happens to be the pay clerk that gets money in my bank account, you serve just as much as I did because I want that money in my account every fifteenth and thirtieth of the month. Don't get me wrong, I, I've you know people served and people had their roles to play, and the the system shuts down without you know for what is it they say for every soldier in the front line there's five behind you know the wire that you know to, to make that this sounds work about right. Again, I'm never going to trivialize anyone's service. And if I could do it all over again, I would join the Air Force. And <laughs> I would be wearing a blue friggin' thing, sleeping in a warm bed, eating warm food. Oh, good you know food, I mean? too. The Air Force know how food. to eat, man. And, and, oh, and, good food. And, and, and sleeping in hotels. Like, no. I Honestly, when I was a <laughs> 17-year-old whippersnapper and I was a fool and, and I wouldn't have listened. My 17-year-old self wouldn't have listened to 38-year-old self now. And I and, and gone to the Air Force. I would have adamantly opposed. I wanted to, you know, I had something to prove. That's why the 17 to 20 year olds are the guys that are in the infantry because there's that sense of invincibility and that romantic notion of, you know, valor and fighting, um, which again is rightfully deserved and, and, and is true. Um, but once you get to the, the mortality of it all and you realize, oh, I could actually, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice, I think it changes uh, you in a sense. Um, but going back to that Legion point, I think the biggest problem that the Legion has uh, for quite some time was this refusal to change. And the fact that they're supporting us and behind us is is, is huge. But back, I honestly, but back specifically to my question, which was the, medal, uh, the, yeah. medal, the medals on the right, the Legion medals. Are you for, against, or indifferent? You know what? I'm for them. And okay. the only reason that I'm for them is the fact that it... it, it in, it's inclusivity. A lot of these people in the Legion, they're volunteering. 
and they they're spending and there's they're like 30 40 years one of the women that works for my wife uh she's a huge legion member she's been there for 30 years and never served a day in her life but has supported and and, and raised money and helped her local legion the legion is also a business right and their their goal is to, to raise money and some of these legions are are dying because you know people aren't supporting it so when you have a, a legion where you do have support and you know i'm actually on the committee for honors and awards and my local legion hasn't provided any um hasn't done the medals in quite some time especially because of covid and i'm going to hopefully in the next meeting look at the books and start issuing these medals and hopefully because of COVID, we're having a difficult time getting people in. And um, we, uh, my, uh, I was thinking about naming our our uh, legion after an indigenous soldier because we're in Thompson, Manitoba, eight hours north of, of Winnipeg, um, very very high indigenous population. And we're we're going to talk about possibly naming it after Tommy Prince or there's some other soldiers that we've we've in the in the area uh, closer to where we are because Tommy Prince is more around the Winnipeg region we think we can actually do this for and i think that's the whole the whole concept here is if we can have a renaming we could possibly bring a lot of the members back for this big event maybe they could start coming again uh you know and on a regular basis and it, it's a way to keep people involved right so those medals on the you know while they might not represent um uh, actual bravery and stuff like that and i i understand what you're saying that it distracts because I won't be wearing, if I get a Legion medal, I won't be wearing them on, and I'm not going to be buying my blue uh, jacket and gray slacks. I don't want to wear that. That's not, that's not what I want to do. I want to wear, you know, what I want to wear and I'm not going to wear a Legion uniform and, and, and get something embroidered on that, that little thing that, that the Legion crest embroidered on the, the blue jacket. I'm just, that's not for me. But for them, if it if it means that much to them, who am I to say you can't do that or that's not right? Um, but I do understand. I, I understand both sides of the coin. Um, but there's some really cool guys in the Legion now. You got the guy named Hood. Uh, he's really involved. Uh, Kyle Scott. Have you heard of this guy? Scott Kyle or Kyle Scott? Scott. Kyle. Uh, yeah, Kyle Scott. Uh, oh, you talking? You talking about the? Okay, who are you talking about? I think the guy I, I that does up. the medals. The guy that, that that finds out what people are actually entitled to and gets them their rightful medals. He's he's over five hundred guys now. Oh my god! And he's huge in the Legion. You should have him on as a guest. Really cool guy. Okay. They did a Legion art article about him, but yeah, he he's fascinating. Some of the guys, like World War II veterans, that didn't know they were entitled to these medals. Uh, a lot of these guys were entitled to like Norwegian medals from you know in the in nineteen forty and stuff. And these this, these guys are in their nineties and stuff, and they kind of get these medals for them. It's really, it's really heartwarming. This guy, uh, and honestly, he needs to be recognized for what he's doing. And but a big thing is he's 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 very supportive of his legion, and he he does that. And I, I'm I'm just like maybe a month back into the legion, and and doing stuff like I go to the meat draw and we do a chase the ace here. Like I'm just like kind of like a month back into kind of really supporting the legion and and being part of my local legion, um, but. I've always been a member, but I've never really been. I've just given my dues and kind of like, but now I've actually gotten onto the executive and done stuff like that where I, I kind of want to really, you know, especially since they're supporting Valor uh, in this initiative because I've done initiatives in the past where they haven't, uh, um, they haven't even uh, uh, gotten back to me or, you know, or said, yeah, we don't want to help, or yeah, what? Because I tried to start an Afghanistan uh, association, uh, a veterans association, and I didn't get too much support from anybody in the Legion. What, what do you think now, it would take to get uh, Afghanistan veterans and even uh, guys of my vintage from the Balkans uh, to get folks like us to come back to the Legion? Like, what would have to change to um, make it attractive for us? So I think I think again, like getting getting away from the the blazer and the gray pants, and I mean, if you really think about it, the Legion's got like what the cheapest beer in town, you know, pool tables that are free that you can you don't have to put you know money for the most part, or you can just play pool, dart boards, like that's the kind of stuff I like. And if they added a, a buck hunter, oh man, now I got a bunch of loonies and I'm playing buck hunter all night because that's like one of my favorite, you know. <laughs> um, 
like honestly, the Legion is is, is uh, there's some legions, especially in small towns, that are incredible. Like the Legion here in Thompson is the best bar in town, and it's huge and it's great. I honestly love going there, and everyone's super nice and super everything like that. I think I'm the only veteran there, or one of the only <laughs> veterans there. And uh, yeah, they they are super supportive. Super, they're actually like super happy that I'm getting involved and helping. And and uh, yeah, every uh, there's going to be a meat draw on Thursday because Friday is Christmas Eve, and I want to take my wife. And I guess the Legion just announced all family members get a year free membership. So I've been talking to uh, this guy Dion Edmonds out of the. the for this, this, for helping for this stuff. And he's been sending me some stuff, some really cool stuff that, you know, I, I, I really do think the Legion is starting to evolve and, and, and kind of become more desirable. But you also got, is it where I'm from, Windsor, Ontario? Like, I think if there's only two Legions left for 200,000, or a population of 200,000. You're seeing a lot of, especially in the big cities where, you know, in Toronto, where the bars are so much better than the Legion, or the Legion, I don't know about the Toronto Legions, I've never actually been to one, but I, I imagine that they're, you know, in the big cities, the Legions are having a really hard time becoming, staying viable. And I think the only really spots that the Legion really does thrive are in small Canadian towns. Circling, circling I, back uh, to why we're here. Um, right. So Jess LaRochelle. And yeah. have you spoken or has anybody spoken with the veterans ombudsman uh, about we, this situation? We have not spoken to, so it would be the defense ombudsman. Um, and the last defense ombudsman was actually a friend of mine, uh, really straight talking, really great guy. Uh, he was the guy that basically called out Harjeet Sajjan for uh, <laughs> the architect for his, of Medusa. Right. Of Op Medusa, right? As somebody that fought in Op Medusa, I want to talk to the architect too, because obviously getting shot. Um, but uh, for myself, uh, the, we haven't really approached the ombudsmans because have you seen? If you seen what happened to Pat Strogan, you've seen what happened to some of the ombudsmans. It's just it's it's farcical how they treat these people and what actually power they actually have. Um, we we could reach out, um, but right now we're focused right now on townships and associations. Um, I just got a message while we were talking that my home association, the E&K, are going to put forward uh, the, the motion to try to, to, to support this. Um, we've got, and we got, right now I'm waiting on the Airborne Association, and uh, we've got support uh, from, uh, the fact that the matter is, is that we've got the RCR, the PPCLI, CSOR, uh, possibly the Airborne Association. That's, you know, those four have come together and said, yeah, we support this. And for them to do that, the Legion to do that, this is unheard of. This has, like, never happened before. And, and, frankly, I've been part of the veteran advocacy community for 10 years, uh, solidly. So why is this, uh, the, the awards committee, not listening to all this? So I don't know if they're not listening. I think, again, they don't like being told what to do. That's first and foremost. They don't like change. They don't want their. I, I the can hear you. To be hear your, your pen clicking quite a bit. Oh, there. sorry. My apologies. <laughs> um, they don't want their um, their to be questioned, and I think now, for for example, so they ego. Didn't review this. The answer yeah, is just I think, ego. I think ego plays a major role in it. I think obviously not wanting to uh, be told what to do, um, and and keeping the status quo. But I think what's really interesting here is we've got some actually something that's coming out in the next few weeks, which is huge. Actually, I'm, I'm breaking this on your podcast here. Um, is that Admiral Mark Norman? Are you familiar with with yes. the, that gentleman and the issues that he had in the procurement of the new naval ship, in which then the Trudeau government threw him under the bus and treated him quite poorly. And the smartest thing he ever did was hire the, the that one lawyer out of Toronto that that that, that worked for Jean Gameshi. Oh man, she is the best lawyer in Canada. I tell you what, man, she is honestly. If you're ever in an, a, a rough spot and you're like, "Oh man, I need to hire a lawyer," she is the lawyer that you hire. And he, the smartest thing he did was hire her, and she ripped them apart. And then they ended up, you know, apologizing, dropping the charges, and everything like that. Um, so what ended up happening is, um, we we did. Uh, He's, he also sat on that 2012 review board. So Mark Norman sat on it, and he, we reached out to him, and we asked him what he thought about this. 
And he said that 2012 review board was just reading the citations over and kind of like discussing it, not, not interviewing witnesses, not interviewing people that were there, just kind of like, okay, they, they looked over 101 citations and didn't change one of them. And he said it left a lot to be desired. So in the next coming weeks, he's going to release a public statement saying as such and basically calling into question that 2012 review. And we have a lot of people, especially D&D, has been using that in, in official statements saying that the 2012 review was sufficient enough for this. And we've now got clear uh, example as to that it's not. Bruce, thank you for your continued service and for everything that you've done for your country and are continuing to do. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story on the show today. For the podcast version, I'll have to put a, well, caution, war porn (laughs) disclaimer on the front of it. Um, But just thank you for everything that you're doing, and please stay on the line. Honestly, this started as as a hobby. And uh, it's become quite bigger and it's become more of a community. And uh, tonight we're having our podcast with General Hillier um, where he's going to be doing Shots for Soldiers. So I'll send you the link. But if anybody wants to, on our Facebook page, uh, join us. All you need is a shot glass and an ounce of fluid and we'll toast the memory of some of these great warriors. Actually, let's, let's close with that. What's the name of your podcast? It's Shots with Soldiers. Shots Actually, with Soldiers. It, it's General Rick Hillier's podcast. I just happen to facilitate as, as a producer. But, yeah, he uh, he does a presentation of a soldier. We actually did a Tommy Prince episode uh, for uh, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Day. Uh, when Trudeau went uh, surfing, we were uh, we were commemorating Tommy Prince. So, <clears throat> All right. And, again, <laughs> thank you for your time. And uh, stay in the line and... We'll, uh, we'll talk off air. You're listening yeah. to Operation Tangle Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment, that would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Mm -hmm.